Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hello there, Barb Higgins here welcoming you to episode 66 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm recording this episode in the week leading up to Thanksgiving. And one of the major reactions that I have had to the death of Molly is a real low tolerance for holidays. In the beginning, they were just too painful. Everything just was missing Molly. And now the process of redefining them and setting up happy experiences for Jack can leave me feeling pretty befuddled sometimes. And so this time of year is just you know, a time of year that for all of my life has been a tricky time. This was a time in my life when I was sick a lot, the season changes, allergies, you know, being heightened. And then I was often abused in the season changes. I have a very hard time with the darkness. I don't know that I have definitely seasonal affective disorder, but I do know that I do a lot better when it's light and that lots of my sad memories or bad dreams occur at nighttime or, or I remember the weather is cloudy and dark. I finished sort of my life story with the exception of the five or six years leading up to the death of Molly. And what I'm trying to do now is sort of go through all that I've gone through and talk about specific things that, that are effects of some of the griefs and traumas that I've gone through. And I have one of those lives where I've gone through a lot of things. I've always had a unique relationship with my body. And so I'm going to spend some time in this episode talking about that and talking about the ways that our lives can affect how we feel about our bodies, what we look like, how we're treated, and some pretty significant things that can happen. So I will start with Molly's death because that's sort of the most recent thing. And when I think about what I've gone through, that's all still happening now. So I was 53 when Molly died. And I remember the year or two leading up to her death, I was managing some injuries, some CrossFit injuries, and I had put some weight on. I was about what I weigh now, high, high 130s, low 140s. And I was consuming a lot of alcohol and wasn't eating super healthy. I was working out every day, but again, nothing was really coming together. I was in a pretty fragile state. I was up and down in a lot of areas of my life, but I still felt young. I didn't feel old. I was still getting my period. I was living sort of just my normal life, doing CrossFit, you know, working 50 million jobs. When Molly's death arrived, you know, when that occurred, my life just stopped. And I mean, stopped. I have a like a day planner and I had everything in it. My workout log was in it, everything so that I could, so that I could see my entire day. And then, you know, it's very, very full right up until the day that she dies. And then it's white. I, I stopped. I just stopped. I truly stopped everything. And so emotionally I was in this state of shock and I had a lot of support around that. People are very, very good. I think everywhere, but especially in my community and my circle of friends in helping out somebody who's in that traumatized time. But in terms specifically, sort of physically, what happened to me is I remember I just suddenly became old. So my entire life stopped. So I lost Molly, but I also had some disenfranchised grief that was hard for me to share. So disenfranchised grief is when you're grieving something, something that people might not know about. So for example, say you are a same gender couple or a trans couple, or you're having a relationship with somebody that nobody knows about, maybe an affair, or you're just seeing somebody in secret. 
or you have an aspect of your life that's just hidden from others and you suffer a loss in that part of your life and you're sort of grieving it by yourself. So when I lost Molly, I didn't just lose Molly. I, I lost everything. I, I quit the job I had. So I lost that entire professional circle. I was with Roy the last eight days of Molly's life. I was in Amsterdam with Roy and in, in Marblehead. We were at a point where our relationship was probably going to really solidify. And Molly's death just put a kibosh on that. And I'll talk about that much more in season seven, some of the things that led up to that. But that was a huge piece of my grief and it remains a huge piece of my grief. All that I thought my life was going to be. So all of these things came crashing down. So I, I no longer am getting up and going to work. I am no longer with any consistency going to the CrossFit gym. And I'm spending a lot of time sitting. I'm spending a lot of time eating unhealthy foods, a lot of processed carbs. And I'm now drinking an inordinate amount of alcohol. I'm taking so many antidepressants and you know, all these different medicines to try to keep my head intact. So physically, lots and lots and lots of things happened to me. Obviously, I gained a lot of weight. I had a considerable weight gain. I was about 142 when Molly died. That was in May, November, when we returned from a trip to Hawaii. I weighed 160. <laughs> so, you know, that's 17 pounds, which maybe 17 pounds doesn't sound like a lot to some people, but for me, it was significant. None of my clothes fit. I just, I just was bigger and bigger. And I actually got up over 170 a couple of times in that process of after Molly's death. I didn't weigh that much. That's about how much I weighed pregnant. <laughs> so I really, really got, got up there and got heavy. Some of it was a side effect of medications and some of it was just, I think, the effects of grief. The most major thing that I noticed is I suddenly became old. And let me explain what I mean by that. So when you walk down the street and you look at people, you know, oh, that she's probably in her 30s. Oh, look at how she walks with such a bounce in her step. She's probably in her 20s. You can look at people and look at their posture, their mobility, how they move. And you can see that this is a younger person or an older person. And I had a sense of myself as a younger person. I didn't look in a, in a store window or walk by a mirror and look at myself and think, oh my gosh, I'm old. And I suddenly did. The change was profound. I looked older in my face, I looked older in my neck. You know, I've always colored my hair since forever. So I have a lot of gray, which I found when I had my brain surgeries. But I suddenly, I just suddenly became old. I felt it. I was thick in the middle. I looked like a woman in her 50s. And prior to Molly's death, I did not look like a woman in my 50s. It was amazing. My period stopped. I went into what's called trauma-induced menopause, which was the death of Molly was such a shock to my body that I went into menopause. The last period I had of any significance other than you know, hormone-assisted periods and the creation of Jack was the end of my trip to Amsterdam, the week Molly was in life support. And I remember lying on the floor that summer after she died and feeling little bubbles of sweat all over my body. And those are hot flashes and they would happen in the night. I'd wake up covered with little beads of sweat and then they'd go away. They would just disappear. It was the most amazing thing actually. And, and I was just too distraught to even notice. Sometimes severe traumas like this and the effects they have on your body can take you one step further and cause something called body dysmorphia. And that's a very broad, broad generalization. And I don't notice that so much around my physical symptoms of grief. You know, I also think some of it is my age. I really could just give a flying fuck what people think about what I look like right now. I mean, I want to have my teeth brushed and I want to look nice, but you know, and when I'm coaching in the CrossFit gym, I want to make sure I have coaching clothing on that, you know, suits my current physical fitness status. I don't want people to look at me and go, oh God. So I definitely have often been very, very cognizant of what I look like. But in the two or three years after Molly's death, I really didn't care. I didn't brush my hair for a long time. I didn't take showers. I couldn't go into the bathroom. I hosed myself off in the yard. I'd wear the same thing for days. It wasn't until Gracie or Kenny would say, okay, you smell that I would change my clothes. That was in response to everything. I could get incredible support 
in my grief around Molly's death, but my grief around the dissolution of my marriage to Kenny and the loss of my relationship with Roy, those were things that I that I've just sort of processed on my own. And it's difficult because quickly when 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 I invite anyone into those grief journeys, there are are the stories that everyone else puts into them and the assumptions made by others. And really the only people who truly know anything between Kenny and I are Kenny and I. And the only people who really know the truth between Roy and I are Roy and I. The hard part is people connected to Kenny, other family members of his, come up with ideas in their heads and sometimes their words become true. And I know that's also true with Roy. We all have a story to protect. And that's another piece of disenfranchised grief. In my process of grieving dead Molly and grieving the life that I thought I would have, grieving the the fact that I thought I still had another year as a middle school mother and then two full high school experiences and going into that first fall after Molly's death, knowing I only had three years left and Gracie was gone. That was, I think, a big driving factor in the, in the creation of Jack. I just wasn't ready to be where I was. It was this stunning, shocking realization. And that was very difficult for me. So when I look at my mind-body connection around Molly's death, I didn't have any emotional feelings at all toward my body. As a matter of fact, any sort of sensation that caused me to feel anything was too painful. As someone like me that has processed grief through physical movement, in the year or two after Molly's death, I had a very hard time at CrossFit. I could go through the motions, but if I pushed myself too hard, I would start to cry. It was gut-wrenching sobs. I, I had to walk out of the gym several times. I didn't want to make everyone else's workout experience uncomfortable by bawling. And there were some times where I just sat down on the bench over off, off to the side and cried. And people were very understanding around that. I went to CrossFit. I maintained my patterns. I maintained my routine because there was safety in it. It was something that I could count on that, that I knew existed. And I used to go in the mornings that first year after Molly's death, when I was just home and Molly should have been there and I should have been driving her to school, all of the should have been's and how difficult that is to deal with. That traumatic experience was the death of Molly. I know that when I lost baby Gordy, so that would have been 20 years prior, almost 2006, 17 years prior to Molly's death, they were 17 years apart from those, those things. I remember after that experience, becoming vigilant about being healthy. Kenny and I were just together. We hadn't even been together, truly together a year when that all happened. And I remember after delivering baby Gordy and going through all of that and coming home, I decided that's it. We have to be healthy. And I put Kenny and I both on a pretty rigid exercise schedule. There was something called Tybo. <laughs> it was like a VHS tape. You did like, it was like kickboxing. We did a 20 minute video every morning, got really fit. We cut way down on the alcohol consumption. I think I actually didn't drink for months and months. I just was distraught that I had maybe caused the death of baby Gordy. And so the year following his death, the rest of 1999 and then 2000 was a very healthy time for me. I I paid a lot of attention to my health and my fitness. I was running well. I was training hard. I was full-time work and coaching. I was just very involved in everything that that I was doing. But I had a very physical response to that. I, I was angry and I thought it was my physical body that caused his death. So I definitely have a strong mind-body connection. There are people that don't, and it often it often surprises me. There are people that really truly don't like to move their bodies, and I can't imagine being still all the time, and perhaps that's because I have so much going on in my head. I also know that oftentimes people have chronic pain, and oftentimes chronic pain sufferers are the ones that should move the most. My mother for a long time had fibromyalgia, which was the result for her of an automobile accident and, and a whiplash injury. It sort of grew from there, and she had a very hard time 
moving around. That was a physical injury, not a response to grief or trauma, but she had pretty intensive hypnosis, hypnotherapy to reverse the effects of the fibromyalgia. And she's one of a handful of people that have actually, you know, no longer has it. So there are ways that our body responds to the things that we go through that oftentimes doctors like to shun away. For example, Molly's headaches were just attributed to stress. We all know she had a brain tumor, but why should physical pain be ignored because it might have been caused by stress. You know, really, it should be really looked at. How is stress causing this physical pain? Why is this happening? When I walk back in my life and I go through my job loss and how horrifying all that was, and again, I haven't really talked in depth about that, I had incredible physical responses to that. I had significant weight gain right after that as well. I couldn't run, I couldn't go running. And it wasn't until I found CrossFit. And CrossFit, I have said a million times, saved my life. And it was that daily going to the gym being with a community. So I had a connection of people that cared about me and loved me and then working hard. And I had immediate, I had immediate response physically to CrossFit. I joined in November. Actually, yesterday was my 11 year anniversary of joining CrossFit. And by January, I had lost like 16 pounds, 17 pounds, and I had musculature. It was amazing. I remember I was in a tap dance that year. We wore these red dresses. And we, when we were measured for our, for our costumes, I measured a large. And then when the costumes arrived, My costume was huge. So I ended up having to switch with somebody and still have it taken in quite a bit. But I was a completely different beast at that time. I went from 142 to like 127. In six weeks, over the holidays, I was not paying attention to what I was eating. CrossFit and the intensity of those workouts did that for me. So here's two times now, the death of a child, the loss of a job, meaning Gordy and then my job loss. And my response is to react with changing my physical appearance, changing my body, becoming healthy focusing on that. And these are times that I really, really like being inside my body. As we march back through my life, I don't think there's ever been a time that I haven't been involved in some physical activity in a consistent way. All the way back to when I was young, getting involved in things started for me as a way to not want to be inside of my head. So the the other way that the body is affected by grief and trauma is it gets agitated. So we, of course, think of agitation as a behavior as an emotion or a feeling. But again, these agitations come from your brain. In looking at things like body dysmorphia, body hatred, physical responses to abuse and trauma, lots of these things can also be caused by chemistry in the body, by obsessive compulsive disorder, which again is mechanisms in your brain, chemicals being shot out that tell you you should be anxious or tell you that you should, you know, calm down or whatever. You know, when I look at people with OCD, they do very physical things again and again and again to create a sense of safety in their brains. And that's a very strong mind-body connection. So when I think of, you know, the years where I was, I moved back to Concord after living in Boston for about 10 years. And again, I was coming off of pretty intense alcohol and drug use. And I was breaking up with David and I was having this huge life change where I went from one person to another. And so what did I do? I went to the Y all the time. I joined the Victorian Society of New Hampshire. I sang in a couple of plays. I just became incredibly busy. Not everything was physical, but everything used my body. You know, when you're in a play and you're singing a song, you're singing, that's a physical activity that you're doing. And it regulates breathing and mood and emotion and thoughts. And you have to remember the song and memorize them, you know, and then perform them. All of these things were a key ingredient to my settling in after relocating from Boston to Concord. So again, I take a traumatic event and I focus in on myself. I went to AA, I stopped drinking. I went to the Y every night. I did play rehearsal every night. I ran, I was running quite a high mileage when I first returned. I remember when I first dated Graham and was dating Jim, we did tons and tons of Nordic skiing. It's what he loved. We were outside all the time, hiking, mountain biking, 
skiing outside all the time, busy, busy, busy. And these are times that I was incredibly happy. So in my life, there's a pattern of always being involved in physical activity of some sort. So I have a very strong mind-body connection. As I march back through college and high school and really coming to terms with myself as an abuse survivor, you know, I hadn't lost a child yet or two. I hadn't gone through those sorts of griefs. I hadn't been married and divorced yet. I hadn't done any of those things. And actually, when I look back on my marriage to Eric, that was a relationship that was relatively devoid of physical activity. He worked many hours a week as a restoration carpenter. So he was physical all day. When he came home, he wanted to sit and rest. So anything physical that we did, we did separately. When we would go out or like we bought cross-country skis. And so, of course, I wanted to go find ski races and compete. And what he wanted was to walk through the woods on the, on the skis and look at things and just be in nature. So it was two different, very different mindsets. He liked to fish and he wanted me to go fishing with him. He was a fly fisherman, which is beautiful to watch. And I can sit in the sun with the best of them on a riverbank, but he sort of would walk up the river and fish and walk up the river and fish. And, and his idea was that I was, I would just be with him. Well, okay. Walking up a river and stopping and watching somebody fish, <laughs> like shoot me now. So we had a very big disconnect there. And, and I'm not surprised that the relationship wasn't successful with Kenny and I, so much of our activities early on were him getting involved in the things I was doing. He, he came into our relationship pretty unhealthy. So we cut back on drinking. He started running. He was running like 30 miles a week by the time we were really together. And, and running became something that we did when we would go on vacation. I would go for my run, then he would go for his run. Then we'd start our day. And so we would go to the YMCA and lift. We had workout routines that we did together. I wouldn't say that our relationship was built upon those kinds of things. We would go skiing. Kenny likes to ski, but we, didn't, we haven't gone skiing together a ton. It wasn't like something that we did. I think just basic fitness and health working out are things that Kenny and I connected on. I remember in raising Gracie and Molly, wanting very much for them to have some physical thing. They, had, they danced and they sang and they did theater. So they were using their bodies to express themselves and in ways process, you know, the things that were going on in their life. I know that Molly, much more than Gracie, had incredible sensitivity to what she looked like. She hated what she looked like. She didn't like her nose. Her hair had to be perfect. The outfits had to be just right. Why am I so skinny? You know, she had, she had incredible body self-criticism. And I worry sometimes that she may have really struggled with that as she got older. I, she just constantly compared herself to others. And I was that way as well. And this is where you're sort of born with these tendencies. And a lot of body dysmorphia comes from who you are inside of your skin before anything has happened to you. So for example, oftentimes we're identified by how much we weigh or what color our skin is or what group of people we associate with or how we treat our bodies. And these things ultimately have nothing to do with who we are. I was always super skinny and very blonde and very blue eyed, but I always felt long before I was an abuse victim, I didn't think I was all that pretty. My mother would argue that all I did was look in the mirror and oh, I have beautiful hair and all this. But I think I told myself a lot of that. I do know that my friend group, Jackie, Jill, Terry, Michelle, all had brown hair and brown eyes. <laughs> and I was this blue eyed blonde. So I often felt like I didn't fit in. I just didn't look like my friend group all that much. My best friend, Suzanne, she had green eyes or greenish blue and red hair and piles of freckles. And I felt better with her because neither of us looked like anybody else. Sometimes we have this self-judgment based on what we hear about what we should look like. I just listened to a podcast episode, Shenanigans, and they were talking about two P words that can affect self-image and body image, parents and peers. So in looking up body dysmorphia and body hatred, 
one of the biggest causes of it that isn't intrinsic, like you're not born with it, would be teasing, bullying, or being abused. And so I know that I had hated my body because I felt like it betrayed me. And I felt like no matter what I did, I couldn't prevent the abuse. And so I had an incredible amount of self-hatred. I was also at a meeting. Every once in a while, I'll go to an AA meeting. I really, really enjoy listening to the stories. And I was at a meeting recently, and the gentleman that was speaking talked about how when he was young, he was just told he was bad. He had a very abusive father. He had six siblings. He recalled his dad coming home at night drunk and smacking the, his belt on the steps. And they would all be crying like, oh, and crying and crying. And, and he would beat them all with that belt. And they'd cry. And, you know, and what a horrible it was. And he, they would ju- he was just told that he was bad. You're a bad boy. And he believed it. He believed it his whole life that God doesn't love me and all of this. And, and I believed it. I actually raised my hand and shared in that meeting and said that I really related to being told that God doesn't love you and that you're bad. I had a neighbor's mother tell me that when I was little, that God didn't love me. And I believed her and it's stayed with me for a long time. And this feeds into my own body dysmorphia and self-hatred and whole mind-body connection. I could have 50 compliments. And the one insult I get is the thing I think about over and over and over again, especially when it's related to what I look like or how I move or something like that. As I moved back into, you know, tracing my steps back to my younger days, running was the very first thing that really made me feel super good about my body. Prior to running, I was very involved in, in gymnastics and I was terrible at gymnastics. I mean, I sucked at it. I'm not mobile. It took me forever to get a split, stretch and stretch and stretch. I finally could do a split. I got sick with a cold for a week and didn't go to gymnastics. And it took me three more months to get my split back. It was really fighting a losing battle. And so it ultimately didn't make me feel happy or make me feel good about myself at all. Prior to gymnastics, I did swim team and I loved the swim team. But again, that was associated with a lot of stress. That was when I was being abused. I was just trying to get out of my family situation and stay busy. So swimming was often scary for me. I was little. The water made me so cold. I was so skinny. So I'd ask to go to the bathroom and I, because I'd be shivering and I'd stand in this hot shower and try to warm up and I'd get in trouble sometimes for not being in swim practice. I was so cold, just so cold. It was really difficult for me. And so that didn't last for a long, long time either. I would hike, you know, my mother would take me hiking and I would go and play with Suzanne in the woods. Long story short, without rambling on about my life, I have always had a very strong connection to my body. So when it comes to how do you heal and how do you treat yourself for the things that have happened to you, and there are all sorts of different kinds of therapy. And one is called cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's a good therapy because what it does is it sort of gives you lists of actual things to do. Notice your triggers. How do you feel when you're triggered? How can you respond to your trigger? Rather than try to analyze and go back to everything that's happened to you your whole life to figure out why you are the way they are, you know, why you are the way you are, you concentrate on things you can do in the moment, day to day, to feel better. And probably as a youngster, I could have benefited from cognitive behavioral therapy. I don't even think it was a thing 30, 40 years ago when I needed it. But it's a, it's a very, very helpful thing now. Other things that can be helpful, so oftentimes, especially with body hatred and body dysmorphia, people can be given temporary use of antidepressants, serotonin inhibitors, where it controls your serotonin release better. For some reason, this is helpful. It can be helpful with the self-hatred. It takes the edge off and maybe makes it so that you can deal with how you're feeling. Oftentimes, people with body hatred are self-harmers. They'll pull their hair out or they'll cut. I never had any of that. As much as I hated my body, I didn't want to damage it. I got sick. You know, I would get asthma attacks and I would, I was skinny and I'd throw up a lot. You know, I just got sick. I was an unhealthy person. That was how my body responded. The other piece of this, so you have your own self. So here's Barbara Higgins. 
recovering from sexual abuse and getting sick a lot and hating my body, joining 50 activities, playing the violin and the piano, singing in the choir at church, joining the youth group at church, going to church every Sunday, swim team every night, Girl Scouts, you know, just as busy as I could possibly be. Making my way into middle school and high school and getting into high school and, and still doing theater and, you know, all of the things that I was still doing, no more musical instruments, but 50 other activities and finding running and then running all the time, every day, 50, 60 miles a week, joining a running club, going to road races. Running took over my life and I really became a runner. And it was a way that I could identify with myself in a positive way. So that's all me. So the other piece of life, you know, and I think about, you know, some of the conversations I had over the years with the, with the girls I coached. So much of life is not talked about. It makes people uncomfortable. The responsibility sexual assault victims have, the responsibility. So if I really look at groups of people that have a, a responsibility for not making other people uncomfortable, anyone that's marginalized, it's somehow their job, not only to make sure they can fit in to a place they don't feel that they fit in, but also to make sure they don't make anyone else uncomfortable just becomes your job. And that was one of the biggest lessons I got when I first was told I was being abused sexually. Well, don't tell people, it will make them uncomfortable. You know, and, and so I didn't. I kept so much of that grief to myself, disenfranchised grief. I was grieving all of these things in secret because I wasn't supposed to tell anybody. And even now, when somebody, you know, starts talking about that kind of abuse or that kind of trauma, everyone gets skitchy. I was in a play. I was in the Pirates of Penzance. And there was this woman in her 80s named Florence Holway. Long since passed away now, I'm sure. She'd be like 110. But she was this amazing woman and she was in the play. And she came up to me and she was all bruised. I mean, just bruises everywhere. And I'm like, Florence, what happened to you? And she said, well, a man broke into my house and he tied me up to my bed and he raped me all night long. I hugged her. Oh, Florence, I'm so sorry. So this was when I first returned to Concord. And I was still really sort of new into AA and really starting to figure out who I was breaking up with David and all of this. I was in a pretty tender place. I could not handle it. I was so triggered by her confession to me. A group of us sat down around with her and we held her hands and we asked, is she okay? And can we do anything? And then I made my way out. I went home and I was a disastrous mess about it. It was on the news. She was amazing. She was very open about it and honest. They ended up catching the guy and he was sent to jail. I think he's probably still in jail. Horrifying, horrifying. Talk about illustrating that sexual abuse has nothing to do with low cut shirts and miniskirts. This was a woman in her 80s, and the man that raped her was 25. So, whatever was going on in his head and his abuse of her had nothing to do with what were you wearing when you were attacked and why were you out so late? She was asleep in her bed. I just remember that troubling me so much. She had this willingness to just share, and it did make people uncomfortable, but she shared it anyway. It was a huge lesson for me. She didn't have to grieve that privately that experience. She didn't have to disenfranchise her grief. She was able to share it. When I look back at my life, so much of what I've grieved, I've just kept secret. I've been private about. And sometimes that's because I've been told that would make the most sense. Sometimes I've been silenced out of fear. Sometimes, you know, I've just shared things with the wrong person. And so, you know, I struggle, I struggle with all of the side effects of disenfranchised grief. And then when you look at the things that have happened to me, death of a child, nobody wants to talk about the death of a child because it makes it real for other people with children. Sexual abuse, very uncomfortable. You don't want to say the words. In my life, my losses, my job loss was connected to a family in Concord, you know, a married couple that were then divorced and my involvement in, in helping that family. It was all so much of what happened. I didn't talk about to anybody because 
I wasn't supposed to, you know, it wasn't right. It wasn't my story to tell, so to speak. I spent all those years after losing my job in the district, just humiliated and silenced. But what I did was exercise. So looking at societal pieces, and and I'm trying to compare my losses, so sexual abuse and death with things that other people have that are also losses. So we have this idea that some big traumatic thing has to happen for you to suffer a loss. I'm going to spend some time the day after Thanksgiving with a friend of mine who's a member of the trans community. They are, I believe, non-binary, and I don't always fully understand the ramifications of these labels, but I do know that we all have the right to label ourselves the way that we see fit. They have been an incredibly helpful resource for me in understanding the mindset of somebody that goes through the process of gender transformation. So either being born in a female body and becoming male or being born in a male body and becoming female or some some sort of place in the middle that people that are hardcore, black and white, male, female have a hard time understanding. I know for me, as girly as I was as a little girl, dresses and frilly underpants all the time. I didn't always play frilly games. I liked to climb trees and play in the mud. I liked to ski. I liked to hike. I liked to do things that belied typical female behavior of the time. You know, in 1960, 1970, when I climbed my first 4,000 footer at age seven, little girls didn't climb mountains. It was not at all like it is now. So I look at all of the ways that we are connected or disconnected to our bodies and all the things that cause that disconnection. And also all the room that we deny ourselves. You know, the river is wide. You know, being female isn't a narrow stream. It's a wide river. There are tomboy females. There are prissy females. There are females that like to sleep with a lot of guys or a lot of girls. And there are females that wait until they get married. There are females that wear makeup and high heels and very feminine traditional clothing. And there are females that go to the gym and lift weights and develop muscles. And and then there are females that combine all of those things together. Why we have to have a single definition of anything is troubling. So I know for me as a mother and as a young daughter, so much of what happened to me that I had to now cope with, child abuse, child loss, so much of expectations of me from society didn't fit with who I thought I was. And the expectations were what the other people in my life needed or thought should happen. It's why so many, there's such a high prevalence of mental illness and suicide around groups of people that think they don't fit in. When you look at physical illness, those that live in poverty and in America, there are illnesses that are almost non-genetic that are much more prevalent in African-American populations and Hispanic populations. And there's nothing genetically in those two races that would indicate they would have more illness. And when you look at these same races in places that they are not marginalized, those illnesses don't exist. Our bodies are more than just, just a physical thing that disintegrates when we die. So much goes on inside of us that is related to everything we do and see and think and feel. And this has become so evident to me. One of my favorite coaching memories is we were sitting on on a side street outside of Concord High School, stretching. And I always would say to the girls, body fluid management, your whole life is body fluid management. You don't want to pee yourself. You don't want to fart or poop your pants. You don't want to throw up in public. You got to blow your nose. You cry. You have your period. You throw up. So much of life is managing body fluids. And I remember oftentimes talking about when I taught health and talking about all of this. And I remember one time mentioning when you hold in a fart and how you get this sort of stomach ache. And I would say almost simultaneously, I said, raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. All the girls raised their hands. And all at once, half of the boys in that class said, why would you ever hold in a fart? 
So I think boys are more willing to fart. Why is it okay for boys to fart and not girls? I know that in any relationship I've ever been in, by the time you can fart with somebody, my male partner had always been farted before me. <laughs> we attach, oh, that's not ladylike, to so many body functions that happen just the same, burping, all of it. But I, I remember sitting in a circle coaching and talking about all the different things that would happen, you know, like having your period. And I remember I was substituting a kindergarten class and I started bleeding all through my pants. And one of the little kids noticed it and I had to go clean myself up and, you know, try to explain what was happening. It was horrifying. You know, how do you explain that situation? And I remember sharing these stories with, with my runners and just the different things that happened to our bodies. And one particular conversation was like growing hairs on your nipples, right? So that has nothing to do with body fluids, but it certainly is a body identification. And you think, okay, chest hair, that should only be on guys. Why is this happening? And to me, that was always a good example of how wide the river of femininity and masculinity truly is. Very few people are only one or the other. All of us carry within us tendencies that flow across gender norms. And so many gender norms are societal, societally based. People decide what men and women should do and, and the values are attached to those things. I remember after my abuse started, I was much, much less willing to dress prissy. I, I still dressed up, but I liked pants. I had a lot more outfits that were a bit more masculine. And I know at the time I just felt safer in those clothes because not such easy access to the body parts. But again, am I a tomboy now because I'm wearing pants? In my journey through dealing with all of these things, I really find that my connection to my body and the mind-body connection is big. In looking at therapy and looking at how I can help others, you know, in my grief class, we spend a lot of time talking about what grieving does to us physically. There is a type of therapy called somatic therapy. And what it is, is it therapy that's very connected to your body. So of course, the things that come to mind right away, deep breathing, yoga, relaxation exercises, meditation, these are all things that I actively avoid. I mean, I actively avoid them. The only time I can find myself deep in a meditative state would be in physical activity. So for example, a workout in a CrossFit gym that is just repetitive, three or four movements that you do over and over again for 30 or 40 minutes, you disappear into the workout. A long run. I ran 16 miles out of my way once because I was lost in my thoughts. I can meditate that way. Sitting still and being within myself and deep breathing is very difficult. Having said that, it was hypnosis and hypnotherapy that cured my asthma. So I do have the ability to do it if I want to. Somatic healing techniques. So rather than talk therapy, patients focus on the physical sensations that come as they're remembering things. So that reminds me a bit of EMDR, which is a much newer form of somatic therapy. You really use your body as a mechanism to deal with the effects of a trauma or grief. There are four somatic practices. There's movement for the sake of movement. Then there's movement through exercise, focusing on your inner experiences. There's rolfing, body-mind centering, several different techniques. Sitting, the biggest thing that they all start with every place I look, sit and center and breathe. <laughs> I promise I will never make any of you sit and center and breathe. Somatic examples, all of it, any physical sensation you have can be related to somatic therapy. I do some personal training. And one of the first things I do is ask my clients, when's the time that you really felt good inside your body? When's the time that you felt happy as it relates specifically to your body? Because 90% of the time, that memory will tie into an activity that I know that they'll be willing to do. If you don't like going to the gym, you can pay all the money in the world you want to a trainer. You're not going to go to the gym. And this is, a, this is a pretty significant piece of coaching. You have to meet people where they are and then create a program that they can do with some immediate success so that the success will build upon the success. I know for me, the most helpful therapy for me was 
in Molly's death was the acknowledgement that my grief was valid and that I could use my body to process what had happened to me and feel better about it after. I am connected to my body. I'm lucky enough to like my body. I'm comfortable with my gender. I would like to have more youthful skin right now, but I'm 59 in my 60th year. <laughs> my young skin days are a thing of the past. But I do know that I feel best when I feel okay in my body. And if I had a message in this podcast, it would be that finding your place inside your body where you feel good. Is it running rim to rim across the Grand Canyon? Is it sitting and knitting a sweater? Is it lying in a massage chair? Is it in a yoga room quiet? Is it taking a walk on a tepid day? Is it letting the raindrops soak you in a th summer thunderstorm? What is it that makes you feel good inside your body that isn't a drug or an alcohol or a self-destructive behavior, vomiting or cutting or all those things? It's important to find those things. And that's where you can sort of build that whole mind, body, spirit, happiness. In my efforts as a coach, I will never just focus on one thing. You can't just focus on the mind. Your body and your spirit are with you. It's all of you. You don't have to believe in God to understand your spiritual nature. If you've ever had a goal or a dream or a wish and you think about it and you generate an emotion, that's your spiritual side. I'll end here. As always, I always say, do something good for yourself. Do something good for your body. You know, drink a big glass of water, have some lemon tea with lavender in it. Go for a walk. Do something good for yourself that will have a physical positive outcome. And then do something nice for someone else after that. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.